the last tab is project environment. And it basically says, when conditions become non-conducive for growth in our environment, and Washington cannot be influenced any further, uh, the weather is lacking any precipitation. It should be wet. And uh, the phrase wet implies blood and implies assassination. So this is a, a direct uh, statement that uh, Kennedy should be assassinated. And I might, I might further add that the, uh, the context um, was around uh, Share Kennedy Kennedy wanting to share more information with the Russians about UFOs and what they call unknowns, um, and there's both a leaked document that talks about this, a part of the MJ12 document, but there's also a, a document from the National Archives, uh, a NASAM memorandum 271 or 273 that. Um, that talks about Kennedy wanting to share more information with the Russians. And that may be one of many reasons why he might have been assassinated. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Robert Wood and Ryan Wood to Exopolitics today. Both of them have quite an accomplishment in terms of their establishment of the Majestic Documents website and several books and a lot of material casting light on the UFO phenomenon from the perspective of leaked official documents. So welcome both of you to the show. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, Michael. Well, Bob, I'd like to... Um, begin with you and and that is uh, you retired from mcdonnell douglas after a 43 year career with both douglas and mcdonnell douglas aircraft companies and, and so soon after your retirement i thought it was around 1994 uh, you began to work on the majestic documents or you were given some leaked documents to Authenticate. So can you describe, walk us through exactly what, what happened? Well, actually, I retired in 1993 in October. And in early 1994, I got a call from Stan Friedman, with whom I'd been a colleague in the past, saying that he had uh, received a copy of a uh, document that uh, was, was potentially interesting. Was I interested in, in uh, assessing it? And I said, definitely, yes. And so he worked it out so that I was able to uh, meet with Don Berliner, who had this copy of uh, Psalm 101. And uh, I, I went and uh, through Washington and I went with Don Berliner to a uh, photographic shop where he watched over the process of actually making high quality copies of this document. And uh, um, towards the end, there was a couple pages at the front we couldn't really see very well. So um, we copied those too. And it turned out those were the control pages. 
And that turned out to be important later. But this was the process that started me actually um, becoming more involved after I retired <clears throat> in authenticating the uh, Psalm 101. Thanks. So, uh, so Ryan, I mean, how did you, how did you get interested in investigating UFO documents? Because I know you actually have worked as uh, as an engineer or in that industry. So, what, why why did you kind of make this move into studying and authenticating uh, these controversial documents? Yeah, it's a great question. I I wonder myself uh, how it all happened. Um, but I'd say the seed was planted when I was a 15-year-old and Stan Friedman came to dinner uh, one time and um, talked about uh, what he was doing at Douglas Aircraft Company for my father or McDonald Douglas at the time on reverse engineering UFOs. But that's a longer story for later. But, you know, I was curious about uh, the topic sort of as an investigator, as an analyst. Uh, and sort of ignored it for the majority of my 20s and, uh, and 30s. And it wasn't really until, um, I mean, I went to a few UFO conferences, but you know, when my dad got the uh, special operations manual in, in 94 and began to retype it, and we began to uh, talk to Tim Cooper and his trove of, of documents, uh, yeah. it became far more interesting and engaging uh, that there was uh, something spectacular here. Um, but uh, you know, my professional business career has been in, as an engineer and a scientist and um, in semiconductors and computers and aerospace and, and now in um, uh, energy and fusion energy. Well, yes, uh, that uh, those interests are something that uh, is quite relevant to some of the majestic documents, especially when we're talking about some of the propulsion and energy systems of these. Um, now, now, some of the documents actually do talk about novel types of uh, propulsion and energy systems. So was that something that um, particularly drew your attention? Well, um, to some extent, yes, at the time, uh, it, it looked like good uh, material to try to authenticate when you have specific elements and written commentary uh, about this uh, neutronic power plant um, that was in the white hot report. Uh, there was a reference to something obscure called NE-102, which we said, well, what's that? Why is that even relevant here? And when you find it in the junkyards of Los Alamos, and it's an appropriate, perfectly appropriate term for something that's, you know, in the late 40s timeframe, um, but obscure and irrelevant now today, um, or even in 94, it, it added a check mark of of authenticity to that particular document um, that was around, you know, the description of this propulsion power plant. And by the White Hot Report, of course, you're talking about this, one of these leaked documents that describes uh, the incidents that uh, surrounded the, the Roswell 1947 crash. So, you know, do you, you kind of like want to give people more detail? Because I know there's a lot of 
people in my audience that uh, know very little about the majestic documents and and mm -hmm. some of these documents are you know are very significant with to their content so do either one of you want to just tell us what what is the white hot report and why is that important yeah um well i'll take a stab at it and then bob can fin finish it off okay. uh so it's, uh, I think, dated September 23rd, 1947, and it's a report to Lieutenant General Nathan Twining, um, sort of a summary of the investigation and reverse engineering analysis around the crashed UFOs in, you know, the White Sands area, um, aka Roswell. Uh, and potentially others is not completely clear at that time, but in the basic effort, the preliminary effort uh, to understand what was going on with these crashed UFOs in New Mexico. And it's a 23 page report that um, describes their process, what they did, what they learned. Dad, you wanna add anything? Well, yeah, I want to point out that that's just one of the number of reports that we received from Timothy Cooper. I have a, a folder here that I keep in the safe that has the uh, burn memo report uh, that is uh, significant for, for other reasons. But um, the, uh, the first event that I believe started Brian and me on a, a joint activity looking at the majestic documents was uh, when we were invited to give a joint presentation uh, at the end of uh, 1995 or so uh, back east and it was a it was a dual thing that is he talked and I talked and uh, basically at the end of this presentation which was on the authenticity of uh, uh, Psalm 101 uh, we uh, had Linda Moulton Howe get up and publicly state that this was the first time that they'd heard anything that was the equivalent of, of real evidence that these were authentic. And, and that kind of started uh, Ryan and me on our, uh, what you call mini fame <laughs> and uh, resulted in uh, a few years later in uh, uh, getting a, my getting a phone call from, from uh, Joe Fermich who wound up giving us a lot of money to um, authenticate. To, to, to authenticate the reports. Yeah, yeah. Was, and, so, so go ahead. It was uh, John White's uh, Connecticut uh, uh, UFO conference. It was the last year, the tenth year, and um, that was a it was a fun our first uh, joint conference, first time really going to a, a UFO conf conference of of uh, consequence. So Psalm 101 stands for Special Operations Manual, and that deals with uh, instructions for crash retrieval operations. And I mean, it really is a, an explosive document. I mean, yes. And, and there's been so much debate over it. So do you want to kind of like just maybe give um, listeners or viewers a little bit of a description of the contents of this document? Shall I start? Yeah, you can start. I'll, I'll finish. Well, well, as I said, we got a call from Joe Permich, and uh, the net result was that he gave us uh, quite a bit of money, and he offered to pay for 2,000 copies 
of the Special Operations Manual. And here is one of the copies that he wound up paying for. Uh, that's the original. But uh, Ryan and I, in 2003 or so, uh, felt that it needed some explanation and clarification. And so Ryan and I printed this, this version, which has uh, a great deal of information in the rear that uh, supports the authenticity of the documents them themselves, as well as explains the rationale of, of why the Special Operations Manual was, was printed and created to begin with. Yeah, uh, the, some of the contents uh, to talk to your question, uh, Michael, more directly was, you know, they, they talked about recovery operations in a very practical way, you know, how to pack things up, where to package the bodies, where to send uh, the power plant stuff, uh, how to crate it. Uh, I gave a couple of descriptions of the types of, of what they call uh, extraterrestrial biological entities or EBEs or EB EBINs um, and had type one and type two, which are uh, descriptions of sort of a, the typical gray and uh, a more Chinese looking short stature um, uh, alien as, as well. Uh, the, there was all sorts of, you know, identification guides and other uh, information, but it's it's a fairly robust and detailed document um, that's typeset on a hot lead printing press, and and has a, a lot of uh, indications that the materials are directly sent to Area 51 S4 um, with appropriate markings on the crates and and so forth. So. That, that's really the contents. Uh, there's so much detail. There's so much information. There's so many words and so many um, uh, elements to analyze and check that uh, it was really a golden opportunity to dig in and understand the authenticity uh, of this document and, and prove to ourselves that it was genuine. I know you actually... Uh, both of you developed a, a pretty rigorous set of criteria for evaluating and authenticating these these documents. So how well did the Special Operations Manual stand up to your rigorous investigation and verification? Well, when I first got it, I visited the public printer uh, with this classified top secret document. Yeah, we both did. Well, yes, we both did, but I, I think I went alone by myself the first time. And uh, we talked to this public printer, McCarter, who actually had a job of uh, running some of these uh, machines in, 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 that, in that particular time. So he looked at the document uh, for, for quite a while. And after 10 minutes of looking at it, he concluded that while he said based on the content, he said, I said it's fake. However, if I look at the, the raised Zs that I see here, that I know that that was printed in a lead printing press, probably the same one that I personally used. And he uh, identified the type font uh, that was used and uh, showed that the raised Zs occurred because when the, the rarely used letter Z uh, was, was put down, 
why there's a little crud on the back and it didn't seat properly. So that's why they were raised sometimes. And so the raised Zs uh, together with uh, later, we found that uh, there were a couple of words that uh, were, were, were critical in the point of the, of the time. Uh, in, in particular, the, uh, the word first aid were initial caps. And, and then later they became just one word. Right, along with screwdriver and, and other entomology that's uh, obscure for the era. Right. Um, the, the other thing that, that I did um, was to focus on, you know, what the FBI does is, well, where'd you get it? You know, what's the provenance of, of this document? And, and you could say, well, it's undeveloped film mailed from, um, Wisconsin and yeah. the Quillen Pharmacy. Um, shortly there, shortly before there was the um, Oshkosh uh, fly-in from around the world that's been going around. So the speculation is that somebody flew in and mailed it and, and then flew out, uh, but, or, or not. But I also, going to Bob's earlier comments about the change control pages, um, we looked, or I looked at the uh, initials, uh, the EWL and JRT initials that are in the change control page and cross-correlated this with the Kirkland, um, excuse me, Albuquerque, New Mexico phone book from 1954, 55, 56. And we knew the, the inside of the manual was stamped Kirkland Air Force Base Unit KB-21, I believe. And I found the initials uh, of or the names of these two officers um, right there on Perimeter Road in the phone book. Um, uh, both were captains, I believe. One was a Lieutenant Colonel, one was a captain, I think. Um, that, that was a breakthrough. Yeah, both Air Force officers. Um, and there was no other examples of, you know, JRTs or EWLs in that in the phone book um, that, uh, you know, were, were on the base. I mean, so it seems highly likely that um, those are the guys. And then subsequently, hired a private investigator uh, maybe five years later to try to hunt down these people. And he found one of them, um, the EWL one uh, had passed away and was buried in Florida at a military seminar uh, or cemetery. And his, his wife um, confirmed the name at least to our investigators, but not his participation in anything alien. But uh, anyway, that was that was a providence element of the authenticity effort. Yeah, that was a nice piece of work that Ryan did all by himself. That, that uh, basically, I, I had almost nothing to do with. But so, we were... so I was going to say, um, so your efforts uh, were basically to authenticate this leaked government 
military manual on on how to deal with crashed UFOs. And to the best of your knowledge, um, all of the data corroborated that this was a genuine government official document. So, I mean, the question is, well, then, uh, why isn't this something that the mass media hasn't uh, covered? And and now that Congress is holding hearings on a uh, UAPs or UFOs, you know, could this document be offered as as evidence that in fact uh, UFOs have been visiting us? Some of them have crashed, and governments or militaries have set up elaborate procedures for dealing with the crashes. I think that's an intriguing question as to why we can't offer these up as part of uh, the the recorded history of of the subject. Um, well, we sort of did once. I mean, you, uh, Dad, went to the Steve Bassett uh, congressional hearing, mock congressional hearings, and presented this data. And Linda Howe has, on multiple presentations throughout her career and environment, uh, often hold hold up this manual and say, "Yeah, this is this is the best, single most powerful evidence." that MJ-12 exists um, and you can dismiss lots of stuff, but you can't dismiss this. Yeah. And, no. yeah, she, she regularly uses that in their presentations as an example of the kind of authenticity that you'd expect to see. Yeah, so. So on that, on that manual and throughout many of the documents that make up the majestic documents, uh, there are classifications such as magic. And, and, and I know, uh, Bob, you've, you've mentioned that uh, magic may be an acronym for Military Assessment Joint Intelligence Committee. So, so how did that begin? I mean, how did that, that classification magic uh, become adopted for a lot of these documents dealing with uh, extraterrestrials and UFO crashes? Well, I'm not sure I can say how the, uh, the word magic actually uh, began. Um, clearly, they wanted to have some special way to, to separate these from the usually usual top secret. Um, but uh, I really don't know the details of how that might have happened. I, I do know that uh, we we have a, a wide variety of specialized classifications. And the, the higher you go in terms of appearance level, the, the more there are. Uh, the, um, I think that's all I can say there. I guess I would, I would add that we have a memo um, that uses the term military assessment of the Joint Intelligence Committee, um, I think in, I'm not sure what the date is. Maybe you could look that up, Dad. Uh, but I believe it was in 45 or 44, uh, or maybe it was early 47. It seemed like it, it was logical to use that. I mean, we, we have the, um, um, the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, which the uh, National Archives has admitted is a real organization, part of the Assistant uh, Chief of Staff for Intelligence in, in the Air Force that came sort of out of the OSS and the CIA and the I, IPU, Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, which is sort of the precursor of 
the investigations into crash UFOs, maybe into the 1941 uh, Cape Girardeau crash, um, and was the sort of early element. And then as 47 came along and we had more crashes and then uh, the the trove of documents into the late 40s and the special operations manual in 1954, people seem to be using this uh, MJ-12, uh, magic, magic eyes only, all these classifications. Now, I would add that the National Archives has said to me, and maybe to Bob as well, that there is no classification magic um, or top secret magic in our records. So if an archivist or a declassifier at the National Archives got a piece of paper out of Vault 631, which is a huge football, football field-sized vault, that said, I, I got to review this for declassification, he would look for it against all these various criteria that they have. But um, top secret is something they deal with all the time and they have certain rules. Um, but if it says magic on it, they would say, I can't refer this to anybody. It's not the CIA, it's not the Air Force, it's not the Navy, it's not the Marines, it's not, you know, I don't know where to send this. It doesn't exist. So they, they would look for the usual subjects uh, and then declassify it. Um, so that's interesting of itself, is that the sort of, you know, official denial uh, from the National Archives. And that, and that conversation and, and commentary was directly from an archivist that we knew that was interested in the UFO field that had a job inside declassifying documents at the National Archives, not even a long-term employee. I know there's one of the documents is the Truman Memo from September 24, 1947. And, and that talks about, I think it was Operation Majestic. And it was saying that uh, this was uh, an operation that was going to be run by the Secretary of Defense at the time, James Forrestal. And, and that's often taken as the starting date for the creation of the Majestic 12 or the MJ-12 group. So do you want to kind of explain the significance of that particular document that's on the Majestic uh, website? Well, I think the point I would make is that the point that Ryan just made, that there were earlier crashes in 1941, 40, uh, and also in 42 uh, with the Battle of LA. But the fact that there were earlier crashes kind of set it up to have a process in place that was covert that would be able to deal with the recovery of these crashes. So I think they'd been thinking about how to set up a classification system for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure they're thinking about, you know, how to classify. I think that memo was, uh, you know, 42 or so. And I mean, there was a memo uh, from, from Van, Vannevar Bush to FDR that said, you know, I got to deal with the war now. I can't, you know, set up a program to exploit these celestial gifts um, and uh, hold off here, guys. And it really took until after the Second World War and more crashes 
for people to sit up and take notice and say, well, we really need to understand this advanced technology um, and try to get an advantage over the Soviets. Well, I had so many different documents uh, taken all together that I think one of the very important things that we did was to put them on, on our website. That is uh, www.majesticdocuments.com. It's a website where anyone can go and look at the details of, of each of these documents and, uh, and, and, and see uh, not only the documents themselves, but also our commentary about the authenticity and credibility of the, of the document. Right. Yeah, I think the uh, the Majestic uh, Documents website is, is a real treasure, and I've used it a lot in my research because you, you really don't have, if you're trying to understand what has happened historically with this UFO phenomenon, you, you really don't get a good picture until you consult the Majestic Documents website because that gives you a, a fairly good overview, and you know, and this is this leads to one of my what's well, to my next question, which is, so the, the crash retrieval operations began in 1941 with the Cape Girardeau crash. And, but it's only in 1947, six years later, that the, that the Majestic 12 group is set up to take control of these things. So, so what do you think there was that delay, six years from the time of the first retrieval operation to 47, that they're actually setting up a committee to actually run the whole thing? Well, I think it, it wasn't in a vacuum. I mean, the, the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit was operational there as part of the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence. Um, and so they were, they were cataloging it, grabbing it, sorting it out. Uh, it's just they didn't have enough manpower other than to just capture the evidence. Um, and it really wasn't until Vannevar Bush started pushing at the highest levels of government that he convinced Truman to say, we, we need to do something about this um, in a, a thoughtful and detailed way. Well, I think it was the Roswell crash and its publicity that caused the government to decide they needed to have a, a system to uh, really control the information on crash retrievals. Um, actually, one of the better books on uh, uh, crash retrievals is Ryan's own book, uh, uh, ma 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 Magic Eyes Only, correct, Ryan? Yeah, Magic Eyes Only. Yeah. So and it, it deals with, uh, I think, 70 or more. 74. 74 crash retrievals throughout the world, mostly in the United States. Uh, with uh, a lot of detail on, on each one, a varying, varying amount, um, but with a, a credibility uh, factor uh, for each, each one. So whether it's high likelihood of being accurate or, or low. Uh, and that, that was the uh, remarkable thing that got everybody's attention about the book. Yeah. And just... I mean, it's out of print right now and expensive on Amazon. Um, I'm sorry, I'm working on a second edition. But it's not just the 74 that are in this book, published in 2008. Uh, but now I have, you know, another 25 crashes uh, in a folder 
that would be added to this book to bring it over 100. Um, and again, there are varying quality and sophistication, but there's a mountain of data globally that there's been a lot of crashed UFOs. And you know, there's a black hole in Russia and a black hole in China and many other uh, states. They seem to be all across the world. It's, it's not clear in my mind that uh, the political leaders of um, all countries or most countries uh, have a detailed understanding of what their military industrial intelligence complex has. So your your book, uh, Magic Eyes Only, I think it does a great job in presenting some of the, the data about these uh, historic UFO crashes. So in terms of the, the majestic documents, how important were they in you being able to put together the, the 74 cases? And, and you say there's probably another 26 or so that you're still working on. Yeah, well, that's a great, great question, Michael. Um, the, the answer is some were right there. I mean, uh, there was a, a mention of the 1897 uh, crash in, in Texas um, and that, Took a little digging and we found Jim Mars and found evidence and newspaper articles. And so that, that was a lead that was there. Um, and then there was multiple crashes in um, the, the documents from the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit reports. Uh, so I would say in total, the majestic documents implied that there were a lot of crashes with the Special Operations Manual, but I think suggested that there were only um, you know, five or six that were directly pointed to in the majestic documents trove. Well, one of the more recent documents that uh, came over from, from Heather Wade in uh, 2016, I guess, 17 maybe, uh, had to do with the Aztec crash. And that's one of the crashes that you do have listed. Uh, the contents of that document, uh, when properly transcribed, uh, suggests that it was, uh, in fact, a real crash and was important uh, with respect to describing the history of the program. So the, uh, the, the content of, of that 47 pages that came from the DIA, I think we don't have on our, the website yet. And I think that needs to be considered because um, what I did is I took the words on every page and, and, and typed them uh, with great accuracy. And it turns out that every single one of them is, uh, every single error is consistent with the error in pronunciation and able to show there were two different secretaries who typed, typed it because they used different spaces at the beginning of the paragraphs. And, that sort of thing. So anyway, the work that I did on that, I think, is potentially an example uh, of, of, of another one that should be put on our website. Um, the, the other thing that's important is that the document itself is a kind of a history of the MJ-12 program uh, as of 1989. And uh, uh, so when read from that point of view, it, it represents a, 
potentially accurate recorded history of some aspects of the MJ-12 program. Yes, that document, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency briefing uh, dated from 1989, it, um, it describes the, the Aztec crash. And, and what's very interesting about that crash uh, is that it suggests that President Truman actually met with uh, one of the surviving aliens and that other government officials and military officials met with the surviving uh, alien for up to a year that was uh, uh, kept at a, at a safe house. Um, so the Aztec 1948 crash seems to be a very important one because it appeared to set off a sequence of meetings, official diplomatic meetings between extraterrestrials and government officials, starting with the uh, Truman administration. It, it also has some interesting historical uh, aspects in, in that it does show the signature of Philip Morrison, who was presumably being briefed by this document, uh, possibly to replace Carl Sagan, who was not well. Uh, and that, that story of itself is, is, is sort of interesting because many people have speculated uh, what the history of the members of uh, Majestic 12 have been. The, the original 12 people have now become 12 new people. Well, that's a very pertinent to, to my next question, which is the Eisenhower briefing document. I mean, that is allegedly a briefing that President Eisenhower had in 1953 as, uh, as he was the, or maybe it was late 1952 after he was uh, elected. So he's given this briefing about some of the UFO crashes. And, and you found that document uh, to be uh, stood up very well to your authentication process, and you gave it the uh, highest level of authenticity. So do you want to explain why that document uh, got such a high um, level of authenticity and, and some of its contents? Is that, is that a question for Ryan or me? Or uh, either of you can start off. Um, well, I'll, I'll start. Um, most of the authenticity work for the EBD or Eisenhower briefing document was done by Stan Friedman. Um, and uh, although there are not a lot of checkable facts in that document, um, if it has the highest authenticity rating, I might knock it down a notch because I don't think it deserves it. Um, however, as I recall, um, Dad, you uh, found another source or another different yeah. copy of it. Maybe that's why it has the highest authenticity rating now, is that we had a secondary source. Well, we had a source, however, and that source had slightly different words here and there. Um, furthermore, I think there were, there were a question of whether how many crashes there were and whether the... Uh, parts were completely retrieved or whether they were uh, ruined. So there were other, other aspects of, of uh, inconsistency. So uh, whereas I think that the document taken as a whole um, was 
created for the purpose that, as stated, I, I think some of the details were were made different, perhaps intentionally. Um, uh, the, the people who were involved in the programs, in my opinion, um, have gone in some cases out of their way to put in false clues that cause confusion for those who are trying to authenticate. And this may be one of those examples. But the, the, there are not significant errors in the Eisenhower briefing document, in my opinion. Uh, basically, it tells a story pretty much like it really happened. I, I, might, I might add a general note about authenticity is that you, you look for evidence to show that uh, something is real or accurate or unique, but you also look for um, signs of fakery, signs that um, somebody deliberately tried to hide this and figure out who might have tried to do this or what the motivation was for trying to um, change something or manipulate um, comments. And in general, as reported by somebody who used to work at the CIA, when I showed him all these documents, he said, Brian, there's so much smoke here that there really is some fire. And, and he didn't have any firsthand knowledge, but uh, from an intelligence point of view, there's just so much evidence to say that, oh yeah, there's something really going on here. Um, and we, we found it difficult to point to specific elements of fakery um, and manipulation. And, and in the end, for what cause? For example, this manual here, the Special Operations Manual, why in the world would somebody leak it as a disinformation ploy, for example? Um, and you wouldn't because it would simply attract massive amounts of foreign counter-espionage from the Russians, the Chinese, and from other organizations that would want to understand, wow, the US has alien tech and we don't. And well, that should launch a uh, decades long effort to penetrate Area 51. And uh, I need to implant spies in Lockheed and EG&G and every other defense contractor that has relationships into that uh, organization and that place. And that's the last thing that the government or the security personnel for the UFO fields or other fields wants is to have you know, more espionage targeted around UFOs, um, they want less. They want to just keep it quiet, keep learning, keep keep ahead. This is um, something maybe you could start off with, Bob, because um, I know you've done presentations on this particular leaked document, the, the Burn Memo. I mean, it's an explosive document because it really does appear to be a smoking gun <laughs> of who yes. was behind the Kennedy assassination? So, do you want to yes. kind of like just explain the burning, the burn memo, and you know, why it got that name and its contents, and why it's so important? Well, yeah, I could I could hold hold it up here for a second. You can see that it is a real memo, and it looks like Fred Byrne. 
the the interesting thing about the, the first page, uh, it says, uh, please do not remove uh, by JJA, which is James Jesus Angleton. Um, so clearly it was in the inner circle of the CIA uh, that, uh, that dealt with it. The uh, basically it's, it's got a project, it's got eight different subheadings. And the thing about the memo physically is, is it has these little tabs. I don't know if you can see these tabs here that say A, B, and C and so on. Those tabs, of course, were <clears throat> tabs for the time. You can't go to a store and buy tabs like that nowadays. <clears throat> so that in itself kind of marked the timing of it as being consistent. The uh, the eight tabs each deal with with some aspect of of the program. Um, the the one the last tab is project environment, and it basically says I, that. Let's see if I can see these words here. Uh, project environment says uh, uh, when. Uh, when conditions become non-conducive for growth in our environment, and Washington uh, uh, can uh, cannot be influenced any further, uh, the weather is lacking any precipitation. It should be wet, and uh, the phrase "wet" implies blood and implies assassination. So this is a, a direct. Uh, statement that uh, Kennedy should be assassinated uh, in in that particular one. The the other seven items deal with other aspects of the secrecy leaking out, um, but the uh, the eighth one is is the uh, important one. And I might I might further add that the uh, the context um, was around. Uh, share Kennedy Kennedy wanting to share more information with the Russians about UFOs and what they call unknowns. Um, and there's both a leaked document that talks about this, a part of the MJ-12 document, but there's also a, a document from the National Archives, uh, a NASAM memorandum 271 or 273 that um, that talks about Kennedy wanting to share more information uh, with the Russians about unknowns. Uh, I think signed by uh, Webb um, or directed to him. Um, so the, the, there seems to be a nice confluence of external data and majestic documents that support this hypothesis that Kennedy was trying to share more information with UFOs with the Russians. And that may be one of many reasons why he might've been assassinated. Um, there's lots of theories. I think we've just added another one. Yes, I think that's a very important um, factor in the assassination. And yeah, that National Security Action Memorandum 271, that, that was actually signed uh, on November 12, 10 days before the assassination and on the same date. You, you actually have a top secret 
um, leaked document uh, that was uh, from John McCone actually uh, trying to deal with uh, Kennedy's request to share all of the classified UFO files with the NSA and a long list of other US government agencies, which, which actually threatened the opposing the entire operation. And, and in the handwriting, um, I think it was referring to uh, James G's Angleton, the directives uh, in, in responding to Kennedy, which to me is like smoking gun evidence that yes, it was this particular initiative of Kennedy to, to share UFO files with NASA, who, who in turn, according to National Security Action Memorandum 271, would be obliged to share them with the Soviet Union, that that's what got Kennedy killed, or yeah, maybe that was the, the final factor, the final nail right. in the coffin. Yeah, well, well, well said, Michael. Uh, your gold star for that uh, discussion there. <laughs> well, I did write a book about it, so hopefully some of that stuck. <laughs> Kennedy's last stand definitely uh, yeah. it, it puts puts all this together, and then, you know, and I think Bob's work on on the on confirming the uh, the book. The memo uh, really is, is critical. And, and as you were saying, um, Linda Moulton, how been you know, holding up a, a lot of those documents, um, the, the, yeah. the 1954 SOM document, and I think she also refers again and again to the burn memo as an authentic document. So I certainly agree with that. It's true, yeah. One, one of the ways that Ryan and I became colleagues uh, after we had these visits with Timothy Cooper and so forth, uh, he became interested in, in doing some crash retrieval symposia in, in November uh, of 19, 2003. And so he had me be the uh, first speaker on, on the uh, symposium. Was authenticating the Special Operations Manual was the first subject. So uh, and then for the following seven years, um, Ryan did an, another crash retrieval conference. And I think you might have been a speaker at one of those uh, too, Michael, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah um, I, was, I think it was at two. I think I yeah. showed up at two of them. Very, yeah. very likely, yeah. So um, that's oh another way that Ryan and I became uh, deeply involved in this subject together. And and I, I personally feel very proud of of that work on those crash retrieval conferences, trying to give a voice and an opportunity to many other important investigators um, that did their work on different crash retrievals uh, and let them come and share their input and insights and data. And that was, uh, that was great. And uh, I have a mental commitment to do 10 of them. So I have three left to go. Um, but I'm I'm busy right now, um, but we'll we'll get to it. Um. One of the things that um, I've noticed with several of the documents, and and, and this exp helps explain their being leaked, is that several of the majestic documents are actually drafts. So so maybe explain why it is that it's more likely that a draft can be leaked. A, 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 dra an, a draft official document can be leaked as opposed to the final version in terms of security classifications and so forth. 
why would a, a draft be more likely to be leaked? Well, the, the timing of most of these documents occurs before we had electric typewriters. And so for the most part, these were actually typed with a manual typewriter. Um, and there are people we hired, one of them, James Black, who specializes in identifying the typewriter uh, from the images on the page. And so uh, that, that, that was uh, very important for the, for the process. Um, yeah, I might, I might add that, uh, you know, secretaries typing this, they make a mistake, it's not final. Um, somebody comes in and says, uh, take this paragraph out, put in this next paragraph, and they unspool it out and put it in the trash or set it to the side and, and retype it. And, or the carbon copies, um, these things are always done in duplicate or triplicate, things like that. Um, and so there's lots of copies around there that secretaries may have had access to or, or others that weren't as carefully controlled. Um, but I, I what, one of the, that's a very good point because one of the first documents that Tim Cooper got was from the secretary to James Jesus Angleton. Uh, so uh, that was the beginning of the entire uh, load of documents that Tim got. Mm -hmm. uh, the, um, when we went to electronic reproduction, uh, we, we don't seem to have, uh, well, most, of, I think I'd be fair to say, most of our documents on our website are probably 90% of them are from typewriters, right, Ryan? Yeah, uh, that's, that's true, maybe a little higher, but uh, they, I think that's why we don't see modern leaks today because they're electronic and they get better and better at security all the time. And, you know, as soon as there started, started being leaks in the, in the 80s um, with uh, Jamie Chandray and the Eisenhower briefing document, I'm sure that um, the entire security apparatus for MJ-12 got a lot more rigorous about protecting their information and people and uh, personnel. I, I firmly believe that, you know, the members of MJ-12 probably aren't members very long and they're under incredible electronic surveillance and video surveillance and weekly polygraph tests or monthly. Uh, they probably are underground most of the time. Um, it's, it's oppressive, uh, I would think. And let alone the, the sort of sci-fi like claims of uh, erasing people's memories uh, I wouldn't doubt that at all. I think there's some some literature and some evidence of people working on propulsion systems and then you know not asked to come to work anymore and they can't remember where they worked um, or what they did or anything. And you don't know whether or not that's chemical warfare uh, from the CIA's advanced efforts um, or related or or ETs 
basically doing the the Vulcan mind meld uh, erasure process. I mean, I'm speculating, but um, there there seems to be some evidence of people being deeply involved and then forgetting what they knew. One of the with respect to your your question, Michael, the uh, the uh, uh, the use of secretaries uh, to to do the typing uh, often resulted in there being a, a, a rough draft that was never really corrected, uh, and so some of these, for example, the the uh, one that was prepared for Einstein. Um, in 45, as I recall. Uh, I think that was probably, if you just look at the errors, you find the errors are associated with misunderstanding the word. Um, and the typist just didn't know how to spell it. And, and so the uh, correcting for the type, typist capability in interpreting and assessing all these documents, I think, is an important consideration. And I might add also in the, Eisen, the Einstein Oppenheimer memo is that you imagine Einstein dictating it uh, in in a German accent to a secretary that maybe wasn't familiar with his his language, um, but as far as the authenticity of that document goes, it's it's really rock solid uh, from language use to uh, the forensic linguistic analysis done by um, independent people uh, that we, we hired to, to look at it as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a conceptual piece, but it's very interesting read about, uh, you know, what rights do aliens have to come visit Earth or take over Earth? Or what does international law say about um, ETs and so forth? And it's, um, it's thoughtful, uh, as you'd expect from Einstein. Yeah. Well, well the the forensic linguistics uh, is one of the things that uh, I looked at from the point of view of whether Tim Cooper uh, wrote some of these documents or whether they were written by uh, someone else. So uh, I was able to pretty much show, I think, that uh, Tim Cooper was not one of the authors of, of uh, these documents. So I wonder, you know, to what extent has there been some kind of official approval for some of the leaking of these documents? But, you know, starting with the 1984 Eisenhower briefing document being leaked. I mean, th that that was uh, coincidental with the last member of the Majestic 12 group that was actually identified in the Eisenhower briefing document. And I think it was Jerome Hunsacker, if I, if I recall correct, that, that he had just died. And so just after his death, then this Eisenhower briefing document is released. And of course, all of the 12 members of the original Majestic 12 group are all, are all dead. So that does suggest that there was some kind of official sanction given to allowing this document to come out. So to what degree do you think 
uh, all of these majestic documents that have been leaked have been done so with the uh, approval of some officials that may even still be in positions of power. Oh, well, I don't think that most of the documents we have were uh, approved for leakage. <laughs> I think nearly, essentially all of them we have were, um, were uh, provided to us by people who thought they were important enough for, uh, for us to see, or for Tim Cooper to see, uh, who they viewed as a, a way to get them sort of out. Uh, I personally don't think that MJ-12 ever took a position that they uh, should uh, leak any documents to the public. Right. So what do you think, Ryan? Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, what strikes me is prime evidence that there's no coordinated effort is the, the timing. I mean, you got leaks in 84 and 89 and 94 and 96 and 2001. And from all these different sources, um, there's different sources. There's like seven or eight different sources. Tim Cooper, um, I, you know, responsible for several of them. You can consider Tim Cooper as a single source, but then again, if you talk to him, he said, no, no, the Cant Wheel gave me this one. And this one came in the mailbox with this dash one on it. And this one came in the mailbox with the dash two on it. And it, it seemed like he wasn't, he was a member of the local American Legion. Um, and so I, I think he was getting around. He, um, he had written Freedom of Information Act requests to Atomic Energy Commission uh, intelligence files, and he, he had uh, he had put his name out into the universe as somebody that was really looking at it. And he had a father, um, uh, Harry B. Cooper, who got an official accommodation for his work on the UFO program uh, from, from, from the Air Force, Force yeah. signed by, um, I can't remember the general's name, but he, uh, Tim Cooper, ha had a military reputation, I think, by his his father, who, who did hot lead printing presses and did printing, classified top secret printing at in Air Force Base, which is now in Colorado Springs. Uh, and so he, he had the chops and the interest. And I think that the people that were sympathetic to his uh, interest chose him to uh, provide or to receive these documents that um, were, were so important in their minds. Um, Particularly uh, Cantwell, that which is a pseudonym, um, that delivered a lot of these documents. So, and, and and he was very impressionable too. I think um, there was a story that Tim recounted, which you may have published in your book, Michael, uh, about um, his father Harry watching television and assassination of Kennedy and putting his head in his hands and said, oh my God, they really did it. And Tim is 10 years old. Um, 
at this time, and it made an impression on him. So uh, I, I just, too many different sources, too much time, bad, bad, bad for counterintelligence and attracting attention. Uh, no official leaking uh, that I can see at all. It just would be a bad, bad effort. Um, very negative. So I don't. I guess we don't really agree with your hypothesis there, Michael. But, uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> no problem. I can live with that. Uh, so, you know, so it, it sounds as though it's just been a, a very kind of uncoordinated, just a lot of people with conscience uh, that had access to these documents and decided that they would run the risk and use these documents. And you, you mentioned Cantwell and you mentioned, uh, or you mentioned Sources, but I remember they, they talked about uh, the the death, the mysterious death of uh, William Colby, and that that was actually a result of the, I think, the, the burn memo being released. The consequence of these documents out that uh, the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, William Colby, was actually killed because he was mentioned in that document. And, and, and if he were to be asked, a question, um, you know, he could have uh, confirmed the the reality of that particular burn memo. That's interesting. I forgot that point. Yeah, I mean, it, I think if you look up the official cause of death, it was drowning and was ruled a, a suicide or accidental rather than a murder. Uh, but you know, hey, it's the director of Central Intelligence and. It just takes one Navy SEAL swimming out underneath this canoe to flip him over and drown him and be done with it. Uh, it could very easily have been a murder too. So I know on your website, you, you have a lot of documents that are divided historically, and then you have a page of sources. So is there anything you kind of want to say about the, the website that people that might be visiting it for the first time should should be on the lookout for? You know, where do they start? Yeah, that's a it's a good question. Um, I think I'd recommend they just start with the special operations manual as as a way to uh, go to one of the strongest ones, and then if there's something specific when you every document. Uh, has a little abstract about it. Um, then if something catches your eye in the abstract, you can read the whole document and the document may be one page or maybe 30 pages. But uh, there's, there's snapshots of what the documents talk about um, and their authenticity. Uh, so I would just start with the special operations manual as the, and that's a whole dedicated um, website called uh, specialoperationsmanual.com that specializes in just that document specifically and all its um, questions about, uh, well, it's a fake because, or it, it's real because, and it walks the reader through it. Um, that's, that's yeah. this, this contents of this book in the back is probably what's in yeah. there. And, and there's, there's lots, lots of write-ups. So that's the, the best starting point for people that want to uh, um, orient themselves. 
but we specialize in documents or I specialize in documents and crashes and my dad specializes in just documents. Um, others in the UFO field specialize in different areas. Well, I, I think the, the leaked documents are very significant because I know that others do specialize in, in documents that come through the system. And, and these can be very helpful, but what I found is that uh, documents that are released officially through the FOIA system tend to be um, kind of like my, dealing with minutia and, and kind of superficial in terms of these broader issues that we've been discussing. And if you really want to get deep into understanding what's been happening, you, you've got to dive into the Majestic Documents website and just go through those documents and, and, and the books and, and the conference reports that uh, you've, you've got there linked up on the site. Yep. I, I couldn't agree more, Michael. That's uh, it's a great way to get to the sort of jugular of what's going on. It's certainly been a primary resource for Hollywood and, and their efforts in all, all manner of um, addressing the alien issue and talking about it uh, in and that's great that they're doing that. Well, we've kind of entered a new era now, and just kind of bringing bringing the interview to a close. That uh, you know, now now you you actually have the, the Pentagon and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence setting up um, a UAP or UFO uh, office. Uh, you have them giving uh, reports now to Congress. And, and the latest development is that NASA has actually set up a study group to, to investigate UFO reports. So, you know, given these developments, do you, do you think in this new, more permissive environment that the majestic documents can actually take a, a much more prominent role in introducing people to the depth of what's been happening over the last 70 years? You want to try that, Dad, or you want me to? Well, you start. Okay. Um, I think there'll be some interest on the periphery. Uh, I think that uh, the congressional efforts, the NASA efforts, the Pentagon efforts are all um, what I call blue book-like, lights in the sky, except updated, better video, better cameras, et cetera. They're not cleared or cl to access any of the crash data or the extraterrestrial data. You know, unfettered access for weeks on end in Area 51, uh, going wherever they want, or unfettered access to Vault 631 at the National Archives uh, with three or four guys looking at all this stored data, which they haven't gone through to figure out historically what's going on. Um, so I think that although they're going to have a lot of fun uh, and they're going to look at, um, you know, it's like Skinwalker Ranch, you know, they're putting up uh, fancy sensors and, you know, trying to find uh, new information about gravity control or uh, magnetic fields or shape-shifting UFOs and all that stuff. It, it's fine. I mean, it's been done before. It's just they haven't seen pictures of it or evidence of it. And the heart of the matter is the biological entities, 
the crashed UFOs, the reverse engineering, the technology that's been gleaned from reverse engineering. That's, that's the meat. Um, and um, these guys are going to be playing with vegetables for, for years on end, in my opinion. Well, yeah, I, basically, I would say that the people who are going to be testifying really don't know the real story. Uh, the only people who know the real story are the ones who read, read Michael's last three books. <laughs> and, uh, and the people who he talks with, you know, I mean, the, uh, the sophistication of the uh, interaction between the different civilizations uh, about the, the moon, Antarctica, and, and Mars uh, is, is so critical, I think, for, and you're not going to hear any of that, I think, in the testimonies uh, from, in Congress. So uh, th that's my, my view is that everybody ought to read your books, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and of course, uh, the William Tompkins uh, books that uh, we've been working on uh, that uh, the volume three has just come out. Yeah, that's a good point. I just got a, an email this morning from somebody who said, why wasn't Bill Tompkins book submitted to Congress as an official book, uh, like uh, uh, a couple of other books have, have been submitted. Um, and I, I said, well, do you want to do that? <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, it's possible that we could uh, try to put that book in as a, a, a official report that uh, could could be uh, recorded somehow in, in the congressional record. But I don't know whether it would really mean anything or not. Yeah. Yeah. It's anything uh, that you're working on now. I mean, are there any kind of uh documents that might make their way onto the Majestic Documents website and, and any other kind of projects that you're both of you are working on? Uh, maybe Ryan and then we finish with Bob. Okay. okay. Well, I certainly have an action item to go put this DIA uh, um, manual, or not manual, but document and uh, an abstract of it up on the website. And and I'll have my webmaster go do that. I've just been putting it off. But uh, certainly that, um, I think I'm not really doing much in the UFO field uh, right now. I've been preoccupied running a different company working on fusion. So uh, it, it's the technology that's, you know, the critical issue is, you know, in politics, it's the economy stupid. In UFOs, it's the technology stupid. It's all about the technology. And if NASA isn't working on the technology, if they aren't working on gravity control, and how do you do faster than light space travel, or how do you do uh, fusion uh, in a more effective way, it's clear that UFOs don't run on kerosene and that Ben Rich said uh, many years ago, um, that we've figured out how to take ET home. So in theory, somebody figured out anti-gravity back in the, you know, 80s. And right. the question is, who knows that? Find them, recreate it. Go, um, you know, go spend $100 million 
on bright people researching this in an earnest way. Uh, and if you apply money and resources, you make progress. And one of the great control mechanisms, I believe, has been to deliberately not fund a lot of promising research that would focus on um, gravity control uh, research. And, and, and you see hints here and there, but they often get squashed or um, do, you really, do we really think Maxwell's equations are right? Or is there something wrong here? Do they not deal with current and induction correctly? I, you know, inertia is still a, sort of a weird anomaly. It, it's all about the science. And that's what I think the message from the ETs to humanity is. We crashed these UFOs here because it was convenient, junkyard earth. But in the meantime, you guys, you better figure out how these work because you're not smart enough. You're, you know, we have a brain capacity that's a hundred times humans uh, in bandwidth and intelligence. And you need to figure out how to get there so you can get out of this warring planet and clean up your act with nuclear or, and all the sort of inhumanity of man to man. Uh, so that was my soapbox. Uh, <laughs> Perspective. Yeah, that, that was, that's good. I guess I would I would add that uh, your your point about emphasizing the technology is is very consistent with Michael's point that there's six thousand patents that have been classified, and in those six thousand patents, we very well might find the uh, secret to fusion, but uh, lots of other things that uh, anti-gravity and time travel all those things that we think we don't know how to do. Yeah. Now there's a leak potential for you. Uh, you know, some investigative reporter should find an interview 30 of former U.S. Patent Office employees that used to work in the classified section and uh, see what they have to say, particularly the ones that are on their deathbed or near there that don't care. They just want the truth to come out that has some moral fiber or character. Creative uh, suggestion. You know, hey, uh, give me a million dollars. I'll go s do that or somebody else will. I mean, it's, there's so much work to be done. It's just surprising. Well, I want to thank you both for coming on the show and uh, giving us your credible information. I, I, I truly think that the work you've both done on the majestic documents and authenticating them and making them available to the general public is it's really invaluable. And uh, you, one day uh, I would definitely nominate you for a, the Nobel Peace Prize, for sure. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Michael. Thanks Thank you. so much. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.